This is a CBC Podcast. Hey there, it's Claire here, host and producer at The Loop. And you may have noticed our team has taken a few weeks off over the summer. And we'll be taking a few more as we get our feet under us here in the newsroom. Um, You know, it's been a really busy summer. We're gearing up for an even busier fall with lots of exciting changes at CBC Edmonton. So The Loop Podcast will be returning in October. But in the meantime, we want to hear from you. Send us an email if you have a burning question or topic that you want us to dig into here on the podcast. You can send them to our email, theloop at cbc.ca. But for now, I wanted to share some other work we've been doing here at CBC Edmonton. Slumtown was first launched in 2019 as an investigative podcast into the issue of problem properties in the city. And it turned into a story about a notorious slumlord, Abdullah Shah, a.k.a. Carmen Pervez, and the neighborhood struggling around him. This summer, host Elizabeth Hames continues the series after Shah's death. And I was lucky enough to be on the team, actually, for these next episodes. And I got to say, it is some deeply fascinating, if troubling stuff, and we're pretty proud of it here. So The Loop will be back after Thanksgiving, but in the meantime, for your listening needs, here is one of the latest episodes from the CBC original podcast, Slumtown. I thought I had left Slumtown behind me. Three years ago, days after the first five episodes of the podcast came out, I moved home to BC. My kid had just turned a year and a half, and my then-husband was offered a great job back home in Victoria, where we both grew up. And honestly, I was ready for a change of scenery. Reporting on Slumtown took a toll. Every day in Edmonton, I was immersed in stories of other people's misery. People who had no option but to live in squalor, in dangerous places. People living in fear of their own neighborhood, witness to shootings and violence and deaths. Victims of break-ins and arson. I'd walk downtown to work and break up fights. And any time I heard a noise in my alley, my whole body would tense up. And then there was the subject of my podcast. In my reporting, I'd learned a lot about Abdullah Shah. I learned that people, quite a lot of people, were afraid of him. I learned that he hired some guys to, at the very least, severely beat a man because Shah believed he'd wronged him. And I thought, what if Shah thinks I've wronged him? So when I left, I was stepping away from all of it. But then in March, I was pulled back in. This is CBC News. Notorious inner-city landlord Abdullah Shah has been fatally shot last night. Sunday night, he was gunned down outside of a South Edmonton home. That's left the community in central Edmonton wondering what's next. Edmonton police confirming today that notorious Edmonton landlord Abdullah Shah has died. In 2019, he was the subject of a CBC podcast called Slumtown. Elizabeth, welcome back to the program. Hi, Rod. Well, first, just what was your reaction to the news that uh, Pervez or Shaw had been killed? I felt a lot of mixed emotions. It's been a couple of years since the podcast came out. and uh... I'm Elizabeth Hames. This is Slumtown. Three years ago, we released five episodes. We set out to learn more about problem properties in Edmonton's inner city. At the heart of the issues was Abdullah Shah and his associates. He's changed his name a few times over the years. 
Before he was Abdullah Shah, he was Carmen Pervez. Before that, Gohar Ahmed or Gohar Pervez. Shah has been attached to many of these houses over the years, but he claimed he was getting completely out of the business. These next two episodes, we learn more about Shah, his lasting impact on Edmonton, and why he's a symptom of a much bigger problem. If you just sit somebody in a shelter or in a, you know, a vacant house, you're really not helping them all that much because they need a lot more support than just a, a crummy roof over their head where no water, no electricity, and they're using the basement as a toilet. There's no integrated plan in place, so they become most vulnerable to be preyed upon by some of these slum landlords. Your initial feeling and reaction is, is the problem's solved, and then you realize, no, it's a very tangled web of stuff going on, and I wonder, I wonder, wonder, wonder what is actually happening and what is going to what is the future of this of this area of the city look like It's the night of March 13th, 2022 in a quiet upper middle class neighborhood in Edmonton. The homes here are big family homes, perfect lawns, quiet streets. This is where Shaw lives. It's a stark contrast to the inner city neighborhoods where he's run at times more than a hundred properties. Some of them in such terrible condition that provincial health officers have ordered him to shut down. Some of them used as trap houses or places where illegal drugs are sold. It's also where he has his warehouse and office, the same building where police say they found $86,000 worth of meth, along with oxycodone, Ritalin, and another opiate. This was in March of 2016. Shaw and some of his associates were charged with trafficking and being part of a criminal organization at the time, but the charges didn't stick, and none of them were ever convicted. Tonight, Shaw is driving home through his quiet neighborhood of Riverbend. Down the street from his house, Someone in an SUV is waiting, watching. Shaw is known to drive Hummers, those huge, boxy SUVs, but tonight he's in a silver truck. He pulls into his driveway, and the SUV starts to move. News footage from the scene shows a window in his house marked with bullet holes, at least three. The windows of his truck shattered. He died later that night in the hospital. This wasn't the first time he was shot. In August of 2021, Shaw was standing outside of his warehouse when he was shot in the face. He was released from hospital after just a few days. Shaw's lawyer confirmed that two years before that, Shaw was shot in the leg at exactly the same place where he was shot in the jaw. No arrests have ever been made in any of the shootings. I don't know if it was the same person involved or not in all three shootings. Edmonton police refused to talk to me for this podcast, and they won't tell me if they think the three events are related. But someone really wanted Shaw dead. So who? And why? Well, to answer that question, we need to get to know Shaw and his story 
a little better. By now, you know a bit about Shaw. None of it's good. But there was another side to him. When the news of his death was published online, the comments section filled up with hate for the man. Relief he was gone. Celebration, even. There were a few who defended him. They said he was a good man. That he helped them, saved them, even. That he gave them a place to stay when others wouldn't. He treated them like family. Now, this is the point in the story where we hear about what Shaw was like as a friend. I reached out to anyone I could find who was saying good things about him online. Few responded, and only one agreed to an interview. A man named Ron Singh. Hello? Hello? Oh, hi there. Hi, can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear the whole time, absolutely. Oh, okay, sorry. I think I was just having a technical issue. Now, this was the first I'd ever heard of Ron Singh. I don't believe he's an associate of Shaw's, just to be clear. The last few years, though, before his passing, Carmen and I were pretty inseparable. Um, We hung out, I would say, 360 out of the 365 days. Yeah. Yeah, every every year for the last uh, three to four years of his life. Singh says he met Shaw at the gym when he was basically a teenager still. It was 25 years ago. Shaw and his brother were regulars there. So I'm I'm East Indian and uh, they are as well. And uh, there, at that time, there there wasn't a lot of uh, really built brown guys at the time. And there were these two brothers that were just massive and strong. So I remember I'd, I'd look up to them and I always wanted to work out with them. Um, and I just saw the weights they were pushing. And then finally I just went up and you know, asked them a few tips, and from there they would help me out, and that's how the relationship forged. They saw me as little brother, and that was that was kind of where it went from there. I'd go to their house, I met their mom, um, you know, eventually their wives, that kind of stuff. So each one had one wife, not wives. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, it was it was a relationship. It, I wouldn't say there was anything uh, too technical or in depth with it. It was definitely just. Uh, like guys hanging out, we'd watch the game uh, at the houses. Um, I'd help, like I said, I'd help them with the renovations if they needed it. Singh says that he and Shaw lost touch for a few years, but they reconnected about four years ago by chance. Singh had just been released from prison. He was homeless, a recovering alcoholic, and trying really hard to stay sober. One day, he was talking to a friend who worked for the city. Until one day he comes to me and says, uh, hey, my office has been complaining about some of these houses, um, you know, because they're, they're not upkept or they're being shut down. And he said, do you know anything about these? Because uh, he knew that I, I was, you know, without a home, so I would be in certain areas. Um, I said, funny enough, I do. I actually know the owner of those properties, and he's pretty frustrated too, and, you know, wouldn't mind getting rid of them or selling them because um, he's had his troubles. So he said, we'll get me a meeting with him. Singh and Shah talked almost every day after that. Singh told me that he looked at Shaw like an older brother. He said he believed Shaw was wrongly vilified by the media and law enforcement. I mean, I'm not going to say he was a saint, um, but he wasn't as big of a sinner as, as people made him out to be. I mean, a lot of the uh, a lot of the people in this neighborhood really, really are sad that he's gone. And two months later, you can still feel it. He had a soft spot for people, um, and especially people in this neighborhood. Like, he, he grew up very poor, like, very, very poor. He actually 
started with washing dishes when he was young, supported his family. He was the oldest brother, uh, supported his family, supported his mother, uh, right up until his passing, actually. Um, and he just had this, this spot. And then when he went to jail in 08, uh, I think that opened the floodgate for him of like just even more caring because he saw... You know, while there were people that were deserving to be in jail, there were also the people that they'd come out, they would end up homeless. Singh says that Shah used whatever he had to help people. Everybody knew, everyone in this area knew to go to Carmen. Um, they just knew, like, if you, if you need a little bit of help or money, go see Carmen. If you needed food, go see Carmen. If you need a place to stay, go see Carmen, because he'd find you, you know, through his network of friends, he'd find you a place to stay. So people just knew, you know, if you needed something, go see him. Um, and he, And work. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, he would he would pay day day labor type stuff. Like people would come in and, and they'd have addictions problems and you know, he would he'd see somebody who was high and they'd come in the office and he would give them a broom and get them to sweat it out of their body and, and get them to, you know, start sweeping up the sidewalk outside. Like he was all about keeping the you know, the areas clean and having people work. He didn't like, you know, people passed out in doorways and this and that. He he really got people working and, and the way I look at it is you know, a lot of people look at, uh, he had these associates that were uh, allegedly gang members and all this, and because they were working uh, for him or, you know, cleaning or, or renovating. And the way I look at it is, we can look at it from that perspective, or we can look at it from the eight to 10 hours that they were working for him, whether they were a gang member or not, that's one less drug deal going down, that's one less girl being uh, pimped out, that's, you know, one less person getting hurt because he's keeping those people busy working versus out there, you know, doing their thing, hustling, dealing, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So, you know, I mean, if anything, it was kind of a, I thought he did a pretty good thing. I mean, I really hate going down this route, but there's, there's also, I mean, there's race that plays in this. I mean, if you look at uh, comments and if you look at even, you know, the whole thing with, with Detective B Hills, I mean, it's the, it's the good old Alberta boy versus the, the crooked immigrant. That came in, and I mean that's that's kind of how it plays sometimes. And I mean, you know, myself, I'm born and raised. I'm Canadian. I'm I'm as Canadian as they come, and you know, I face that too. From sometimes our people in uniform, and sometimes just people down the street. So mm-hmm. there, there definitely was a portion of race played in there. And if you look at the comments in the Facebook and all that stuff, I mean, you know, one of the comments was uh, Pervez. You know, it's very close to pervert and. Uh, uh, B. Hills had commented, yeah, interesting choice of names. And it's like, well, Pervez is actually a very common Pakistani name. Mm. So, you know, it's just a, just that lack of, of yeah. awareness. And I mean, you know, too easy to go to the immigrant or send them back or this and that when it's, you know, not all of us were, were not born here. We were born here, a lot of us. So Yeah. Well, it, and did you ever hear Carmen say anything to that effect that, that, that he felt he felt that? Um from the Surprisingly, else? you know, he, he was somebody who, when it came to name calling and stuff like that, uh, he actually taught me a lot on that. And somebody had actually called us uh, a pretty vulgar word, him and I. Um, we were in his truck and uh, someone had driven by uh, and yelled out, uh, I'll say it, Packy. And, uh, and I got mad and I said, uh, I go, like I just yelled, and I got really mad, right? Because I, I was like, you know, how can he call us that and this and that? Who is he? And, and I remember Carmen saying to me, he goes, do you know who the Prime Minister of Canada is? And I said, yeah, Trudeau. And he goes, people call Trudeau names all the time, right? I go, well, yeah. And they have F. Trudeau here and there. 
He goes, has you, have you ever heard of him when he goes up on, you know, on the stand or to talk or anything that he ever says, this person called me a name or that person? I said, no. He goes, that's the prime minister of the country. People call him a name all the time. He said, who are you? <laughs> and I kind of laugh. I go, good point. Mm-hmm. He said, you can't take words like that and take them personally. He goes, you'll get called them all the time. He goes, I learned a long time ago that, you know, as much as it hurts, you just have to roll with it and go, that person might be having a bad day or this and that. So he never played uh, that card, although I, I know it affected him, but he never played that. Uh, he never played the race card in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, it was, I saw it because, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm very aware of it, but uh, mm-hmm. he was somebody who never, he tried not to let words bother him. Is there is there anything that you think you'll remember most, maybe like years down the road, um, any stories about him or just anything about him? Or uh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> so you know, it. I think it was the the time he had met. Uh, unfortunately, she's not my ex, but he had met my partner at the time, and uh, you know, here's here's this guy who she's only heard about in the media. And I said, I want you to meet my, you know, my, my friend, my older brother. And she was nervous to meet him. And I remember he, uh, he's, he's got this, this look on his face. that's always kind of like a, a bit of a scowl. Um, and, you know, he walks up to her and you could see she was kind of tense a little bit. And he had kind of like rolled his shoulders down, put a big smile on his face and, uh, you know, gave her a big hug and said, uh, just, I, I can't remember what it was, but he, he was very sweet to her. Um, and I just remember his smile and like, well, you're the one Ron always talks about. And, you know, I don't know what, why he's so afraid of you. Like, he's always rushing to get home, this and that. Like, it was just, mm-hmm. he was really cute about it. And it, it stuck out in my head because, you know, here's this person she sees in the media, she's afraid to meet. And then all of a sudden, you know, the man behind all that is really just a soft, nice teddy bear right at the end of the day. Yeah. Did it did it work? Did, did it kind of disarm her a bit? It did. Uh, it, dis- it did disarm her. Um, and I mean... He wasn't pandering, which was nice. So, you know, it was genuine. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, she, she was able to relax a little and go, wow, like, he's actually a sweet person. Um, and I said, yeah, he's a, he's a good man. And, I mean, I'm sure there's faults in there, but, you know, she didn't experience any of that. And neither did I, so. Soon after we talked, Singh messaged me saying that he had completely changed his opinion of this man. This man who he used to think of as a brother. He says he no longer saw the good in him. This is just one man's story about Shaw. Other people have said publicly in comment sections that Shaw helped them in some way. But as with any complicated person, there are plenty of other stories about Shaw. Darker stories. Stories that paint a picture of an opportunist with an outsized footprint who took advantage of vulnerable people at the lowest point in their lives for his own financial gain, who exploited loopholes, broke laws, who solved problems with violence and intimidation, and who showed a complete disregard for the well-being of people who lived in and around his properties. Some of what I'm about to tell you I've only learned in the last few years, since the podcast first came out. Some of it certainly seemed to be true, but without enough evidence, I couldn't report on it. But earlier this year, an officer who had spent much of his career investigating Shaw blew the whistle. 
This morning, CBC Edmonton launches a new investigative series. Behind the Blue Line, investigating Abdullah Shah is about more than two years of work done by the Edmonton Police Service. He leaked thousands of pages of documents and evidence to the CBC, which informed my colleague Janice Johnson's work on her series Behind the Blue Line. I'll put a link to this in the show notes if you want to check it out. The whistleblower came forward as Detective Daniel Behils. Detective Behils led Project Fisk. He spent more than two years delving into allegations of money laundering, fraud, tax evasion, human trafficking, drug trafficking, all of it related to Shah. If someone at a street level where they don't have a lot of familial supports, not a lot of education, no fallback skills to find a different job, are then indebted to someone who's willing to abuse them, it can contribute to them committing crimes in the first place they wouldn't normally have done and using drugs at a threshold they wouldn't normally do and being put into situations that end up on the radar of the police where we find violent crimes either them as a victim or them as an offender they deserve some level of at least warning to what could happen to them if they become involved Um, And my hope is that if it's made public, they can avoid being victimized in the future, even if they don't receive justice for what's already happened. It certainly is frustrating. I joined the EPS so that I could do some meaningful work. Um, Meeting a lot of the victims and meeting community members, I feel like I let them down. Some of his story includes allegations of police corruption including Detective Bahil's suspicion that Shah was somehow protected by high-ranking members of the Edmonton Police Service. To be clear, these allegations of police corruption were investigated, and no charges were ever laid. Detective Bahil's currently remains under investigation for leaking the documents. He says he gave the information to CBC because he was frustrated, since he felt there was enough evidence for charges. But the Crown felt that it wasn't in the public interest and that there was no reasonable likelihood of a conviction. So Detective Behils is maybe a bit of a complicated figure too. But his leaked investigations into Shaw have, in some cases, supplied the missing pieces we need to report what we know. Like, we now know he was likely laundering money at casinos. I wondered about this three years ago when I started looking into his properties. The transactions raised many of the red flags for money laundering. Mostly, there was so much money moving around all of his properties. Houses being bought and sold to the same people over and over again. And it was impossible to tell where it came from. But another hallmark of money laundering, police believe Shaw was connected to the drug trade. He's been charged many times for trafficking, convicted once back in the 90s. A few years ago, police found a kilo of meth in his warehouse. He was charged with trafficking at the time, but the charges were dropped. And he was up on trafficking charges too when he died, and he was scheduled to go to court in June. So we have a sense of the kind of stuff Shaw was into. We know a bit more about who he was, but who would want him dead? Could it have been someone involved in the drug trade? Someone who worked for him? Someone who thought Shaw had wronged them? We know what Shaw did when he thought someone had wronged him. We got a hold of a transcript of calls Shaw made to the Edmonton Remand Center, 
This is from January 15, 2019, between Shaw and an inmate there. We've asked two of our colleagues to read the exchange. I need a huge favor. Yeah? What's that? There's a guy who fucking went to remand. Yep. The guy's last name? Clark. He's a Lebanese guy. Okay, Clark. Lebanese. Clark. I need him brought in. He's ripped me off huge. I don't give a fuck what it's going to cost. Okay, okay. To the extreme. Yeah, man, I can do that. I'll handle that. Because I know you're controlling the area over there, so I want to basically make sure that whatever it costs, there is no price tag to it. That's how bad it is. Okay. Yeah, man. Fucking look into that for sure. Let me me write that down. I'm going to write that down his name here. Uh, Okay, so his last name is Clark. And he's Lebanese, and he's bone rack kind of short guy. Okay, I, wrote, I just wrote that down. Just please take care of this small problem I have. Okay, bro, I'm going to look into that here, and if something wraps up, good news. I'll get back to you within the week, but either way, I'll keep in touch. But I'll call you. Uh, what's today? Okay, I'll call you next weekend. How about? You call me anytime. There's no set time for it. All right, all right fine. Thank you. And that wasn't the only call Shaw made to the Remand Center about this. He made several more calls. Here's another exchange between Shaw and an inmate. Listen. You want to make some money? Listen, you remember Clark? He's in the remand right now. I got him on point because he ripped me off 90K. Who is that? What's his name? Remember, Clark, the Lebanese guy fucking working for me. Yeah, Clark, yeah. I told you, yo, listen, bro. Remember, I told you something was fishy about that fucking guy. I told you to fucking get rid of him and throw fucking Mike on. And me and Mike were just talking about that. But I'm not going to talk about that over the phone. I'm just letting you know that there's a big prize. That's it. Okay, well, yo, I was going to ask you for one favor. Are you able to send one of the girls to drop a 50 bucks for my canteen? You show me some results. January 27, 2019, Shaw calls another inmate to clarify that Clark was the first name and Mukhyber was the last name of the man he was talking about. And just a note here, there's no evidence that any of the allegations against Mukhyber are actually true. Mukhyber was not actually assaulted while at the Edmonton Remand Center, but he was assaulted twice a few months later, and he had to spend a lot of time in hospital because of it. I spoke with him a couple of times three years ago, after the podcast came out. Hello? Hi, is this Clark? This is Clark, yes. Hi, it's Elizabeth. Sorry, we keep this. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good. I I, I tried to get a hold of you a couple times, but... uh, even when I was in Edmonton, like two, three months ago, I tried to get home with somebody from PVD, but I was so When Mukhyber called me, he was mad. He told me that if he didn't get justice from the courts for what Shaw did to him, which to Mukhyber would mean Shaw spending the rest of his life in jail, he would get it himself on his own terms. And he, Mukhyber, would likely end up spending the rest of his life in jail. Shaw pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of counseling an offense, and he served house arrest, but no jail time. Now, there is absolutely no indication that McIver is responsible for what happened to Shaw, but he would tell anyone who would listen about his plan. He told me that he gave a statement to the police to that effect, although police wouldn't confirm this. I can't get a hold of McIver anymore. Last I heard, he was in Calgary. But I wanted to tell you the story about McIver and the bad blood between him and Shaw to give you a sense of the kind of world Shaw lived in and the kinds of things that aren't out of the realm of possibility in that world. It's unsatisfying not to know who killed Shaw. I don't know why. I do know, now that he's gone, what his legacy will be. Next time 
on Slumtown. It happened in the middle of the night. It was about four in the morning, I think. We heard a very loud bang, which at first we were deep asleep and just thought, oh, like, I don't know. It, it was in my dream or something. You know, I didn't really think too much of it, even though our house shook a little bit. I was really deep asleep. There's always noise happening over here. And there anyways. was always noise, yeah. It's like, who knows? But then, you know, the screaming started. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.